Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. It's back to school season. As students, parents, and faculty all begin another academic year. However, recent headlines of alleged hazing and assaults within college sports programs are difficult to shake. I'm Jim Hankey, and on this week's episode, you'll hear a recent roundtable led by WBBM news anchor Rob Hart. This discussion features three experts on both the culture of hazing and its devastating effects. In an effort to help parents educate themselves on the warning signs and what can be done if their child has been exposed to hazing. Let's get looped in, Chicago. A quick note before we get started. This episode has been edited for time, so the full discussion, as well as video of this panel, can be found on our website, wbbmnewsradio.com, or you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel at WBBMAM. And for more background on the Northwestern scandal referenced in today's show, scroll back in this feed to our July 19th episode. You'll find more context there if needed. Now, on to the conversation. The hazing scandal at Northwestern University has thrown the athletic program into turmoil. Longtime football coach Pat Fitzgerald has been fired, and the legal fallout has just begun. A number of former players from different sports have filed lawsuits against the school. The alleged hazing incidents at Northwestern University have sparked a larger conversation about hazing, not only in college, but in high school and in other extracurricular activities. I'm Rob Hart. We're joined today by Dr. Susan Lipkins, who's a psychologist and expert witness in hazing cases based in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. You can find her online at insidehazing.com. And by Dr. Elizabeth Allen, professor of higher education and program coordinator at the University of Maine, also a principal at Stop Hazing, a research to practice organization. Her website is stophazing.org. And by Dr. Lisa Stephen personal career and performance coach and psychologist and owner of Ignite Peak Performance in Shelburne, Vermont. Find her at ignitepeakperformance.com. Thank you very much for joining me today. Let, let's start off with your reaction to the allegations to come out of the Northwestern football program. Former players talking about rituals of sexual humiliation, naked drills, and are being forced to drink protein shakes until they got sick. Dr. Lipkins, in your judgment, is this a textbook case of hazing? Yes, I have been seeing uh, sexualized hazing occurring in high schools throughout the country for the last 20 years and in colleges. 
So to me, it was shocking to everybody else. It was not shocking to me. The shocking part was that people were breaking the code of silence and willing to talk about it. Is this a common practice even in 2023 and even with a great deal of institutional effort to push back on it? I think that it is common and I'm not quite sure how much institutional practice there is. So I would question what the colleges are actually doing, how the coaches think about hazing. When I speak to coaches and I say, how many minutes are you spending talking about hazing? They say 60 seconds. And when I say why, they say, well, we have to win or we're going to lose our jobs. So that's more important. Dr. Allen, when it comes to uh, hazing, there is the uh, stereotypical hazing situations, fraternity and sorority initiation rituals, and in sports. Are, are there other places in which hazing occurs outside of those settings? Absolutely, yes. And in, in our research, starting with a national study that we did, collecting data from students enrolled in, in more than 50 different colleges and universities, we found that hazing occurred in many different types of uh, clubs, organizations, and teams. Of course, as you mentioned, varsity athletics and fraternity and sorority life were prevalent, but we also saw it in intramural sports, club sports, performing arts organizations such as marching bands, a cappella groups. We even saw it in honor societies and academic clubs as well. It seems like the emotional pull of hazing is you want to be a part of this group. And it seems like the the choice is, if you want to be a part of this group, you have to participate in this ritual. And that can override whatever misgivings you may have about participating. The definition of hazing that we use, that is a general, you know, sort of foundational definition, is that it's any activity expected of someone uh, participating in a group that humiliates, abuses, or potentially endangers them regardless of their willingness to participate. And so that's that, that third piece is really important because it recognizes the peer pressure and the power of the, of the group to create a coercive environment. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, it's, there is a tendency to blame the victim uh, with hazing, and uh, it's important to recognize that the circumstances in hazing are such that a true consent is is really called into question. Dr. Stephen, let's talk about the psychological after effects of hazing and the psychological harm that hazing can cause in a person, uh, possibly years after the fact. Yeah, I would argue that it can last a lifetime, and I certainly have plenty of adults that I've seen who are talking about hazing incidences that happened many, many, many years before. And really what you see are things like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders, depression, certainly self-medicating with substances. The aftermath is, is huge. And it's not just the hazing victim, it's everyone else victimized in that process. The parents who are traumatized the community members who are traumatized, the bystanders who maybe knew something or maybe saw something. It's just a catastrophic outcome. And I don't use that word lightly. It is so much more than what people realize. If someone is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of hazing or anxiety disorder as a result of hazing, uh, when they talk to you, what are some of the feelings that they carry with them and what are some of their emotional triggers? Well, the triggers generally are anything related to the event itself. So you can see something as concrete as if you're still on campus, 
going into the area where the incident occurred. The other big piece that happens is, again, this concept of choice. People start to believe, and, and certainly youth and college students believe that they had a choice. So there's a lot of blame and guilt and taking full responsibility for something that they really had no power over. Could I make a comment on that? I think that the helplessness that the victim feels when they're in another situation, they could be 10, 20, 30 years later, when they're in a situation like that, a tremendous amount of emotion comes up and often it's huge anger. I worry that people who are not treated for their post-traumatic stress after their hazing will be put into another situation that doesn't look like anything like hazing, but makes them feel the same way. And then their reaction will be an overreaction. And people were going, oh my God, where did that come from? But it could be dangerous. To me, hazing always happens in a group that has a hierarchy and they're trying to maintain that hierarchy. So they could be in a corporate environment. They could be in a church group. They could be somewhere else where there's a hierarchy and something triggers them. And then their emotion is much stronger than the situation. And we don't know exactly what's gonna happen, which is why it's so important that people who have been victimized or involved in a hazing actually get some treatment. And I agree with you that they will need treatment throughout their life because even if they're better now, there's something that can trigger it later. And they often don't know. So you have a person now 50 years old at work who can't understand why they feel so intensely or why they're so irritable or they're raising their voice or they feel so frightened and not necessarily connecting that back with some of what they experienced many years before. Now, Dr. Allen, if you are a parent and let's say you have a child who has joined uh, hypothetically the, the marching band at college, and unbeknownst to you, the marching band has a hazing ritual, and it may seem harmless at first, but there are some psychological after effects. What are some signs uh, in your child that uh, maybe they're, you know, things are not necessarily right, and uh, they're, they're carrying some uh, psychological baggage after that hazing ritual? I'll start off by saying we do, on the StopHazing.org website, provide... Uh, some resources around sort of red flags, things to look for that might be signs of hazing. They could be changes in behavior, sleep disturbances, uh, withdrawing from regular activities and interactions with the family, not associating with their usual group of friends. And I'll also just mention that our research shows that students are more likely to report or share about hazing experiences with their families than they are to report it to a campus official. And so it is vital for uh, parents and families and caregivers to become educated on what to do should they learn about hazing or suspect hazing is happening and know where to report it and how to talk to their students about what's happening. One of the things I think that's important to think about as a parent that might not be obvious, is before you even get to the point where you're going to be talking about hazing or any scary thing that might be happening to your child, to really just check in with yourself, to think about what are my feelings around this? And the reason for that is we, we as parents get upset. I mean, it's a horrible thing to think about your child being hazed. And that can lead us to minimize it and tell ourselves, oh, no, that wouldn't happen. We picked our college, so they were so careful and we know the coach. The other thing that happens that we're unaware of is thinking about the messages we're sending to our kids. We want them to have fun. 
So if our child is coming to us and saying, I feel a little uncomfortable, or they're not really telling us in a forthright manner, we might urge them to continue because we're wanting them to join in the fun, not realizing that they are potentially in a dangerous situation. So my top tips are starting first with that idea of self-reflecting as a parent, really then thinking with your teen or college student about hazing, then moving into talking about the facts of hazing, looking at cases, thinking about that together and, and hear what I'm saying together with them. And most importantly, what will your plan be? If you feel something that's conflicting with your values, you have a bad gut instinct, something's not right, what will you do? And getting a very concrete plan together. I'd like to make a couple of comments. I've been involved in hazing in marching bands. And the way you're looking at it, Rob, is that like as if hazing is one thing, but particularly in marching bands, it can be the entire year. It's not an event. Hazing has a beginning and a middle and an end. It's a repetition of a tradition that's happened before. And I have found, especially on college campuses, it's like multi-level, ongoing, often brutal, and very difficult to remove yourself from it. On a college campus, in any situation, the person has to be very brave to break that code of silence and to report it. Hopefully, there are many ways to report it anonymously, and hopefully there's a good group who will investigate it. But even making that decision, I was working with a family recently. So they're at an Ivy League school and a great team, and they have a scholarship. They don't have a scholarship. They'd like to stay at the school. They don't want to stay on the team. They've been hazed. They don't want to haze the next group. What do they do? Do they report it or do they wait till they graduate or do they leave the college? All these kinds of questions are, are very personal and very complicated. It's a very good point you bring up, uh, Dr. Lipkins, about it could be a year-long process until you have moved up in the hierarchy and then maybe you become an enthusiastic hazer as opposed to a hazing victim. So uh, can you talk a little bit about perpetuating the cycle? Uh, that that psychological damage that that hazing can inflict, maybe they really enjoy doing it to somebody else once they have the opportunity to do so. I call it the blueprint of hazing, where people come in, they want to join the team and they're victimized. The next season, they become a bystander and they watch as other people get hazed. Some people are active bystanders, like saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And some are passive saying, oh my God, I don't want to be here. And then eventually they are in the senior status, and they feel like they have the right and the duty to repeat those traditions, and they take that entire blueprint, and they take it from high school, they put it in their backpack, they bring it with them to college, to the military, and to the workplace, and they're kind of pre-ready. They expect something to happen, and what the audience needs to understand is Hazing is not like when you go to the surgeon and the surgeon says, so there's a possibility this and this and this might happen. In fact, when people who want to join the group say, is there hazing? They say no. And then the hazing begins and those kids get it even harder. Well, Dr. Allen, let's move on to you. And in terms of uh, when you hear people talking about like breaking the cycle of hazing or investigating hazing, where they say, uh, well, in this organization, we do this. It's more or less like silly pranks. We make somebody go steal a sign. Uh, we, we, we have a hell week that's just basically they don't take a shower or we make the freshman wear a dress or something like that. And they say, well, it's OK because it doesn't reach that level of harm. And your response to that would be what? 
it's still hazing. There are healthier ways to um, welcome people into a group, of course. I would also note from the research that we have data showing that those who experience those kinds of types of hazing that people might consider harmless pranks or or more benign than the, the violence kind of hazings that make the headlines, we find that there is um, a link between students who experience those behaviors and the experience of violence behaviors. So it's um, all hazing and it's it's all unacceptable um, in the context of our um, schools and colleges and universities and workplaces. And so that's what we really have to focus on is the behavior we want to see and how can we build the skills um, for that? That's something that we're really um, investing a lot of time in, in terms of prevention. And I also wanted to mention in relation to your earlier question about the cycle. I fully agree that students are experiencing hazing um, as early as middle school, we know from, from research, and then in high school, and then coming to college with expectations that this might be, you know, is sort of normalized. At the same time, our research, our data collection, when we ask about attitudes related to, to hazing, the vast majority of students say hazing is not acceptable. However, when you ask those same students what they think their peers think, they think their peers think it's acceptable. So there's a real disconnect. And so what we can do, hopefully, <laughs> is to correct that misperceived norm and help students to recognize like their, their peers think similar to them and um, they'd be more likely to speak out and intervene as a bystander. If you as a parent know that your child has been hazed, your child knows that he or she has been hazed and they understand the situation, they, they understand the dynamics involved and uh, they want to do something about it. It seems like you could be a man or woman alone uh, trying to push back against this. And because group dynamics are so strong and traditions are so strong, you're going to be fighting a lonely fight. And how do you prepare for that? It's a very challenging situation. And I think a lot of support is needed for folks who are going to come forward. And, and I think we need to do so much more in schools and communities to prepare school officials and to prepare community members to know how to support survivors who come forward um, with hazing reports, because it's very, it's very similar, the kinds of experience they have to victims of sexual harassment, sexual violence, um, for example, sometimes sexual violence is involved in hazing. So you see that overlap. I, I actually call it the second hazing. And what happens is that about 85% of any group, whether it's on campus or in a community in high school, 85% will support the status quo. They will support the coach, even if they know there was hazing, they will support the team. They'll say, you should have taken it. Everybody takes it. Why did you break the code of silence? 15% um, will support the victim and their family or anybody who's, who is breaking the code of silence or anybody who is coming forward and saying, no, this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing this. So the point is that it is integrated into our culture. Generally, it is accepted by the majority more often than not. I would suggest psychological support right away for everybody, for the victim, as well as for their family. I think it's also important to remind ourselves that we talk about these extreme incidences of hazing where 
they're out in the open, they're very high profile, but again, these other incidences are happening on a day-to-day -day basis that are extremely traumatic and degrading, humiliating, scary, powerlessness. So we just don't want to forget that those types of hazing that are seemingly, you know, hidden and people can think of as quote unquote benign are extremely dangerous and extremely harmful. So each of these mild things don't necessarily end up with mild endings. And which is why the three of us are here today trying to say there is no room for hazing in our society, not mild, not moderate, not severe, none of it, because it escalates, it grows. And with each time that there is a hazing, I think the perpetrator wants to add their own mark. So they increase it. They become more humiliating, more sexualized because they, they are experiencing that feeling of power. And maybe they're also gaining a piece of themselves that was lost when they were hazed. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. How has social media changed the practice of hazing, the enforcement of social norms, potentially uh, making it easier to uh, harass people who step out of line or may think about reporting that, or even just uh, supercharging the rumor mill. If somebody does report an incidence of hazing, you can use uh, social media to kind of gang up on the person they suspect did it. Because we're driven by social media in the last decade, two decades, the need to belong and have a group that you identify with is even stronger. I think that the membership in fraternities and sororities has increased over the 20 years. And I think that when kids get to college or anywhere, they feel like they have to have a group and an identity. So I think that social media has fed that need that is natural among uh, young adults and adolescents anyhow. I agree. Of course, it's a factor. I would also say, though, that it's an opportunity um, because we can find out through social media about hazing in ways that it might have been more hidden before. And we can do a lot of prevention work with social media. There's just a lot of opportunity, I think, to also use social media for good and think about ways in which we can shift the culture by messaging in, in positive ways. On a percentage basis, how many people are actually involved in hazing? And is there safety in numbers in that they're just a, the, the vast majority of people aren't in these groups, aren't being hazed, and they could potentially be an ally? 
Oh, yeah, I think there's a huge potential for allies. And, and that's definitely something we're focusing on in terms of prevention work. But on the percentages overall, um, we found in the national study that we did that I mentioned earlier, with more than 11,000 college students, that 55% who belong to clubs, teams, and organizations had experienced hazing. And certainly there were those who did not belong to clubs, teams, and organizations. We still asked them what they knew about it. Many of them, um, close to two thirds, had knowledge of hazing happening on their campus. And uh, many of those had experienced it in high school. Even if they haven't experienced it firsthand in college, they know about it in, in many ways, maybe come to accept it um, or expect it at least in their communities. And that's something that we really need to work to disrupt. And, and we can do that. We can do that with policies and the enforcement of policies and strong messages from, from leaders on campus, leaders who are administrators, but also student leaders, and just working to shift those expectations so that students who, even if they don't belong to a club team or organization, understand this is not acceptable behavior. There have been institutionalized efforts to push back on hazing. Uh, fraternities have been punished for hazing rituals that have been harmful, illegal, and in some cases deadly. Uh, schools say they are doing something about it. Institutions say they are doing something about it. What are some efforts that institutions have undertaken to push back on hazing? And, uh, and once again, this is for everybody, how much more needs to be done? Well, a lot more needs to be done. Uh, we are still really in very early stages as far as prevention goes relative to other kinds of, of forms of harm. The kinds of strategies that are being used are, are many. And we know from research in public health and prevention science that it can't just be one thing. Like having a policy is vital and enforcing the policy even more vital. <laughs> but that's not enough. We need to have a more comprehensive approach, an approach that's um, grounded in, in data uh, so we can evaluate the effectiveness of the efforts and not only focusing on the behavior we want to stop, which is the hazing, but really focusing also at the same time on the behavior we want to see. So what are we replacing hazing with? How can we build healthy groups and teams and positive leaders on campus where it's far less likely um, that hazing will happen in their groups. I think that Dr. Allen has a much more positive view of what works, and I applaud her for all of the efforts and research that she's done. But what I think we really need is something like a National Hazing Prevention Act that would fund a multidisciplinary institute, maybe across the country in five or more colleges and universities, that would be working on what actually works as prevention, what works as intervention, how should we be training people to investigate a 1-800 number like we have for child abuse for hazing and, and methods to investigate that. I think from my point of view, the issue is that we want to change a culture. So I think it has to do with, could we train leaders and groups of kids that as a group, they could stop hazing when it's happening, not as an individual, just like we're having groups of kids come 
come forward in Northwestern now to say, hey, it happened to me, it happened to me, it happened 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, it's still happening. So I think it's going to be a movement like the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement where the victims themselves are coming forth, sort of like from inside out to say, we've had enough, this really has to change. And then just societal influences, too, because, uh, I mean, everybody has seen the scene in the movie Animal House uh, where they had the fraternity hazing. You would see in sports reports on TV, more or less as a, a lighter side of the news kind of story, where you had rookies on a baseball team uh, wearing Halloween costumes or carrying children's backpacks or wearing dresses, walking back to the bullpen. You would see pictures on social media of when a football team would make the rookies buy dinner for everybody else, and they would post the $10,000 restaurant bill that they racked up that they had to pay. When you see things like that, where it's like, oh, it's harmless fun, how do you react to that on TV? Is it possibly perpetuating that cycle? Absolutely perpetuating it. And I would be really hopeful that the pro football players and pro athletes uh, would support those Northwestern kids who have come forward and say, hey, you know, as a professional, we want hazing to stop. You know, it would be nice for them to do that. I have seen that they've tried to stop hazing and all kinds of abuse in the athletic teams. I think they're working really hard at that. And it still happens. Well, I think it's important to react to it by trying to have some really important conversations about why it's not funny and about how harmful it really is. Because again, it normalizes it and it sets this expectation for our youth that they should put up with this. They should expect it. It's normal. It's a part of what you're going to experience. And so I think it's really important to speak out and to kind of deconstruct that message and to point out the harmful and awful consequences. We can't minimize it and expect to shift the culture. Um, So it's super important for people to understand why those kinds of things are actually causing harm. Once more people understand that, they'll be more likely to speak out and less likely to minimize it. And so I think that's the real opportunity we have from conversations like this. And I am optimistic that we can we can get there, but we're not there yet. We have seen that there have been a number of lawsuits filed uh, in connection with the hazing scandal at Northwestern. And in your experience and in your research, how many lawsuits related to hazing instances are filed against educational institutions or other institutions? And is this a thing that will be fixed Uh, more or less in the courts, that schools and other institutions will put uh, more formalized procedures in place if they know there is a legal financial penalty attached to it. I think that in many cases, uh, schools, school systems like high school systems, private schools, colleges are involved in hazing lawsuits. But the whole area of hazing, bullying, and harassment is new in terms of law. Almost all the cases that I have seen actually settle before they go to trial. And the reason is that if uh, the country knew how many millions of dollars they would get by coming forward and breaking the code of silence, the floodgates would open. So the school systems and the colleges and the fraternities and the sororities, they settle because they don't want everybody else to be coming forward. Unfortunately, in this country, 
I don't think we change our behaviors and our culture unless people are getting some kind of significant legal and financial retribution to for what's happened to them. I think it is going to have an impact um, in terms of motivating uh, colleges and universities or schools to invest in prevention rather than um, having to pay out after an incident occurs. So it can help to shift the culture. It's not going to be the only thing that's needed, but it's definitely a pressure point. And I do want to close out by just uh, asking all three, if you're a parent or if you yourself was involved in a hazing ritual and maybe you've been following this Northwestern story and you say to yourself, this sounds awfully familiar and it's dredging up feelings inside of me that uh, I didn't know where they were coming from, but now it's starting to make a lot more sense. What is your message uh, to that person and to that parent? And let's begin with Dr. Stephen. Reach out, get help, get support, talk about it with people that you trust who can support you. And in reaching out, make sure that you are seeing a psychologist or another type of therapist that actually specializes in trauma because it is trauma. Dr. Allen. Yeah, I would agree. I echo that. Absolutely. And also encourage folks to watch the film Hazing, directed by Byron Hurt, H-U-R-T. It was streamed this past year on PBS and will be um, continue to be available. In that film, he grapples with this exact thing of having experienced hazing and the years of reflection and, and how how that impacted his life and how he processes it and, and others too in the film. So I think that would be really helpful as well for folks to check that out. And Dr. Lipkins, you will have the last word. Yes, I think they should uh, consider going into therapy for themselves. I think they should educate themselves not only by Byron's uh, movie, but by everything that's out there in terms of hazing and bullying and harassment, um, and including possibly going to a, an attorney in the state that occurred and saying, hey, you know, these were my damages. This is what happened to me. Is this something that I should be considering having a lawsuit about? So I think that it's multi-level and it depends on how much harm you have had and um, how you're feeling about it and whether you're willing to come forward and tell your story. This episode of Looped in Chicago was produced and edited by Lizzie Baumgartner and myself, Jim Hankey. You can subscribe to the program on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow us on social media at WBBM Podcasts. Again, for full audio and video of today's hazing panel, visit WBBMnewsradio.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel at WBBMAM. We'll get you looped in again right here next week. See you then. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.